thank you all for coming to this, this session. This is Chasing the Wind, Finding Direction When Life is Confusing. Uh, I gave a handout of the, the, the PowerPoint presentation that I'm going to be going through, so hopefully you don't have to take as many notes as we're going through this. Of course, you can use the, the handout that's already in your packet on page 30 if you'd like. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. Let me uh, go ahead and pray for us and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have the privilege of, of looking at your word together this, this weekend. And we commit our time to you here as we dive into the book of Ecclesiastes. Would you help me to think clearly? Uh, I'm a sinful man and I'm, I'm in need of your grace to even present this material. And we pray that Jesus would become more precious to us as we look at Ecclesiastes. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off with this question. Why should you care about what Ecclesiastes teaches? Ecclesiastes portrays life honestly. We see it in the news, right? Life is frustrating and it's perplexing. We see it in the news 24-7, chaos, evil, suffering, injustice, corruption. We see it even in our own lives, right? Have you ever wondered why things are happening the way they're happening in your life? Have you ever just felt sad and wanted to cry and you didn't know why? So Ecclesiastes uh, portrays life honestly. It, it takes an honest look at, at what is broken in our world. I, I appreciated this quote. So honest is Ecclesiastes about the dissatisfaction of pleasure, the drudgery of work, the injustice of government, and the tedium of everyday life that Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick, called it the truest of all books. One of the things I appreciate about Ecclesiastes, though, is it doesn't just portray life honestly, it gives answers realistically. We're going to be seeing not only a description of how frustrating life can be, but why. Why is life frustrating? And how do you find joy and meaning in the midst of life being frustrating? The world's answers, I think we know, come up short, don't they? Some of the world's answers are get rich, be famous, be beautiful, then you'll be really happy. Jim Carrey said this once, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. Halle Berry said this, being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life. No heartache, no trouble, love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless and it is always transitory. So here are two uh, figures, prominent figures in, in our culture today that have, have made it to the top, right? And they say it's not the answer to anything. But Ecclesiastes gives us some very satisfying answers, and that's why we should care to look at the book. I'd like to give credit where credit is due. This is Dr. Mark Futado. I had the privilege of learning under him at seminary a few years ago. I've adapted some of the, the material that I learned in his course with his permission. And so I'm just very thankful for uh, him being willing to use some of the material he taught me. So where does Ecclesiastes fit? In the Old Testament, there are three uh, wisdom books. And there are, there are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and um, Job. And each of them has a slightly different focus. So Proverbs, you could sum up the message of Proverbs with three words, walking the path. In Proverbs, it generally teaches if you do what's right, things will go well. If you do what's wrong, things will go poorly for you. It teaches, Proverbs teaches us how to, how to walk day by day. 
It's not concerned about all the exceptions to the rules. Ecclesiastes is another wisdom book. That's the one that we're going to be focusing on. And Ecclesiastes is about navigating the maze. Proverbs is not the whole truth. What about uh, when the truisms don't work? There's a lot of truisms out there. One I'll mention here is, have you heard the truism, try your hardest and you'll succeed? Has that ever proven not true to you? Sometimes you can try your <laughs> really hard at something and just fail anyway. So life can be confusing. It can be frustrating. Ecclesiastes helps us of how do we navigate the maze when those truisms don't work. And then finally, Job, the third wisdom book, is about managing the dip. Sometimes life has us go down into very deep, dark places. And we need to know how to manage a crisis and prolong suffering. And Job speaks to that. Maybe we can cover that book in another fall conference. The theme of each of these books uh, revolves around the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Ecclesiastes 12.13, here's the conclusion of the matter, fear God. And then Job 1.1, speaking of Job, says he feared God and shunned evil. And so each of these three books, though they have a different emphasis, they're all reflecting on what does it look like to live with the fear of the Lord. But each of the books unpacks how to live out the fear of the Lord in different situations. We need all three. We're going to focus on the book of Ecclesiastes, as I've mentioned. How do you navigate the maze? How do you deal with life when it's frustrating and confusing? So how is the book of Ecclesiastes set up? Simple uh, organization. There's a prologue. This is the, the beginning of the book. It's just, the, it's just the very front end, the first 11 verses. It's written in the third person. And so the narrator often says, says the preacher, speaking about the preacher in the third person. And in the prologue, we get a summary of the monologue. The monologue is next, and that's the, the majority of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's written in the first person. The, the, author, the, the preacher says, I, the preacher, was king, and I applied my mind, and I searched for this, and I tried this. It's roughly broken into two parts. The first half is the quest. And this is, it kind of reads like a travelogue where the preacher is pursuing the significance of things by trying them out. So he, he tries out wisdom. He tries out building projects. He tries out wine. And then in the second half of the book, he gives his advice. What was the wisdom that he learned from his experience? Those are just rough divisions. And then the book ends with the epilogue, and we're back to the narrator, um, who is, again, in the third person. And, and the narrator is, is commending the message of the, of the monologue. And so that's a, just a really brief overview of how Ecclesiastes is set up. You have a longer um, uh, structure outline as an appendix in your handout. Just don't look at it now. You can look at it later, but it is there. So who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, tradition says it's Solomon. And uh, Ecclesiastes 1.1, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And we know that Solomon was the son of David, a king of, over Israel and Jerusalem. Solomon's never named in the book, but he was, this was true about him. And so most people uh, think that it's Solomon wrote, wrote Ecclesiastes. There's another clue. In chapter 2, um, I'll just read what's uh, in the text there. The preacher says this, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I also gathered for myself silver and gold 
and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. And that sounds like someone of Solomon's status. There weren't very many kings in Israel that had access to that many resources. So what? Why is it important that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes? Well, Solomon had the desire and the ability to deny himself no pleasure and to try everything. Therefore, he has something to say to us. He, he's given us a firsthand account. Perhaps you, you, and I, you have said this to yourself, well, if only I had X, Y, and Z, then I'd truly be happy. Well, Solomon had X, Y, and Z. He had it all. We're not likely to be in a position of unlimited wealth and unlimited power, but Solomon was. So he has something to teach us from his experience, an experience that perhaps some of us wish we had, but will likely never have. So that's why it matters. Who wrote it? What is Ecclesiastes about? There are three themes that we're going to cover today. The first is, why is life frustrating? Ecclesiastes describes and explains why life is frustrating and perplexing. And it, this, this theme pervades the book. But there's a second theme, and that is where can joy be found? Finding joy and satisfaction is possible. It's elusive often, but it is possible. This theme, though, is often overshadowed by the first theme. And then finally, what does it mean to fear God? And this is a a, a controlling theme throughout the whole book. And so let's look at them in turn. We're going to deal first with why is life frustrating? Life is frustrating because it is fleeting. Ecclesiastes 1-2 says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The English word uh, vanity translates the Hebrew word hebel. And hebel just means vapor. Um, a mere breath. It's like a mist that, that just, the, when the sun comes up, it's just gone. And that image is often used to, to describe something that is fleeting or elusive. It's repeated 34 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, so it's a, a clear theme. When you think of vapor or something fleeting, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had an enjoyable experience and then it's gone, leaving you feeling empty? Uh, Think of all the buildup to Christmas, right? You get to Christmas, and then you open up the presents, and then you're like, uh, is that it? Like, you want something more. And then it's the day after Christmas, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's like 364 days till the next Christmas. It's so fleeting. And sometimes, sometimes I think the anticipation of Christmas is even more enjoyable than the Christmas day itself. Uh, how about the last day of vacation? You go on a vacation, perhaps with your family or your friends, and I know if you're like me, I count the days in my head. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm about midway through the vacation. There's still a lot to go. And then it's the day before the end of the vacation, and then it's the end of the vacation, and poof, it's gone, fleeting. So life is frustrating because it is fleeting. Second, life is frustrating because it is pointless. One aspect of vanity is captured in 1.3, which says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. And the implication here is that he gains nothing. There's no gain from the toil. That is, is what it feels like to, to, what pointlessness feels like, having a goal but it being blocked. Have you ever been working on a paper on your computer and all of a sudden it crashed and you lost everything? That is pointlessness. That is vanity. Or have you ever been traveling somewhere and, and you, you gave yourself enough time and it's a parking lot and you're on the freeway 
I know a few things that are more frustrating than that. There's nothing you can do. You just look around and all the cars are, are still. That is another example of a blot goal. It's, it's that dealing with uh, no gain from your toil. Um, another aspect of vanity that's captured in, uh, in 2.11 is this, this phrase, chasing after the wind, that I've uh, named this, this breakout session after. And in 2.11, it says this. The preacher says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Such a vivid metaphor, right? You can't catch the wind, no matter how hard you try. It's an impossible goal. Notice here, too, that the, the that last part of the verse, then there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It actually answers the question of 1-3. What does a man gain by all the toil? Well, there's nothing to be gained under the sun. So this is part of why life can feel so frustrating, that you might put so much effort into something and then gain nothing out of it. You know the, the phrase, no pain, no gain, right? Ecclesiastes would, would say, much pain, no gain. Third reason why life is frustrating, because it is confusing. It's confusing. It's perplexing. 7.14 says this, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Here's the kicker. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. And again, in 8.17, says, Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. And I love the last sentence. Even if the wise claim they know it, they cannot really comprehend it. You can't, no, no matter how hard you try, you can't make sense of some things that happen in life. You know, when you look at the big things in your life, which of us can say, I understand how and why everything has happened the way it has happened in my life? Which of us can say that? I know I can't. You know, sometimes God might give you a little bit of insight on, you know, certain matters on your life a few years later, but oftentimes we won't understand why God allowed the things in our lives until we're with him in glory, if, we, if, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior. Remember early in our marriage, uh, my wife and I had a car that had an expensive um, repair. We had to repair the, the radiator. It cost $3,000. still remember that for some reason. And just a few months later, after I had invested that, that money in the, fixing the car, the, the, the car just died for some other reason. And I remember uh, being very perplexed about that. I, I remember even thinking to myself, God, why did you allow me to invest that money to, <laughs> to fix the radiator and then the whole car to die? So that's just an example of life is confusing. And then the fourth reason why life is frustrating is because it is under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, is, comes up a lot in Ecclesiastes, and it's referring to life in this world before you die. And I'll show you uh, one text. Ecclesiastes 6.12 says this, For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like, like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? The idea is after they are gone, they're dead, and they're no longer under the sun. You, you following it? So under the sun is life in this world, but we can get more specific. It's actually life in this fallen world. Life in this fallen, it's life in this world as it has been adversely affected by the fall. And there's some, some text that you can look up. I'll just look up the last one, 319 through 20. 
And as I read this text, I want you to ask yourself the question, what text does this remind you of earlier in the Bible, okay? Here's what the preacher says. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Where does that phrase come from, that last phrase? Where have we seen it before in the Bible? Genesis. It's, it's Genesis 3. It, it echoes back to the beginning of, of the Bible. After Adam and Eve sinned, God uh, proclaimed some curses, and um, one of the curses is that they would, they would die. That He said to Adam, dust you are and dust you will return. So we understand that Ecclesiastes is describing life in this, in this fallen world. Adam would not have experienced Ecclesiastes before the fall. So chapter 1 and chapter 2, Ecclesiastes would not have applied there. Okay? It applies after chapter 3. And so just to review the point, Ecclesiastes is a commentary on Genesis 3, 16 through 19. That's where the, the curses are, are found. It's a commentary of what it feels like. Ecclesiastes is describing life under this common curse, life under the sun. Um, death is a common curse, the op and it's the opposite of common grace. That's, we understand that. We live in a broken world, and, and everyone, everyone's going to die. Um, There's some other texts that you might want to check out. I particularly recommend looking at Romans 8, 18 through 25. The Apostle Paul talks about this, the futility that's embedded in our creation. And the Greek word, the English word futility, is, is translating the Greek word for hebel, for vanity. It's, there's an echo of Ecclesiastes in Romans 8. Check it out. So just to review here, why is life frustrating? You know, one th again, Ecclesiastes tells us life, uh, describes life as it is. So it's a call to biblical realism. We've seen that life is fleeting. It's pointless. That's why it feels frustrating. And we also see that life is confusing and life is under the sun. Um, it, it, we're, we're, we're experiencing what it's like to be under uh, the, the curse. So why is understanding this, this theme important? I want to give you two reasons why it's important. The first is Ecclesiastes puts into words our feelings and our experiences. It reflects the reality we live in. We don't live in the fantasy lands of Hallmark and Disney, do we? We live in the reality of, of life in a fallen world under the sun. And Ecclesiastes gives voice to that, helps us to understand it. But the second reason why I think understanding this theme is important is this. Ecclesiastes exposes what we live for every day. You know, it's easy for us, isn't it, to live for more funny, money, fame, accomplishments, pleasure, even for things as trivial as living for the weekend, right? But all of that betrays us. All of it betrays us, and none of us can escape death. And what, as, we, as we experience that vanity, if we're attuned to what the Lord is trying to teach us through, through that, the curse, it's to drive us to the Lord for salvation and meaning. So fortunately, this is not the only uh, thing that Ecclesiastes talks about, because it would be kind of a downer. So let's go on to our next theme. Oh, just to give you a little bit more of a downer, this is a summary of, of where, what, we're what we've covered so far. I love this quote from Peter. Unsatisfying, endless repetition of old things that nobody will remember. Nothing you do will last, and at the end you die, and you can't fix it. This is Hebel. 
This is what you have to gain from all the toil at which you toil under the sun. So that, that's a summary of how frustrating life is like under the sun. But that's not the last word. And let's go on to the second theme. Where can joy be found? Encouragingly, the, the preacher does commend the enjoyment of life. Here's an example. In 3.2, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And so we do see, we see here that joy is possible. The root word for the enjoyment or satisfaction occurs 17 times in the book. So not quite as often as the vanity word, which is 34 times. But there really are good times. Ecclesiastes does talk about good times. In Ecclesiastes 3, 1, and 4, in the famous poem about a time for everything, it says this, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Um, laughing, dancing, those are enjoyable things. I don't see a lot of people doing those things that are um, necessarily un unhappy. 7.14 says this, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So again, there's an acknowledgment that there is a day of prosperity, and, and you can be joyful in that. So we can also be joyful. Where, 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 what are different things that we can find joy in? The first one is in your work. Ecclesiastes 3.22 says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Perhaps you've heard it said before, find something you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. One of my mentors in college told me, uh, when I was considering a career, he said, try to find something you really like and then figure out a way to get paid for it. <laughs> and so th it, this is possible. Join your work is possible. Um, joy can also be found in food and drink. 313, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Doesn't that ring true? Some of the best experiences that we have are around food and beverage with friends or family. Um, oftentimes, this, this picture of eating and drinking is a, is a metaphor for satisfaction. And you'll see that the, the word satisfaction comes up there. And I'll, I want to point out um, that satisfaction is the opposite of frustration. We talked about life being frustrating. You know, frustration is having a goal and it being blocked. Satisfaction is having a goal and achieving it. Um, this idea of finding satisfaction, he talks about finding satisfaction in eating and drinking, and also in someone's work. Have you ever, um, in your work, have you ever felt good about a job well done? That would be an example of this, finding satisfaction in your toil. So when the preacher says everything is frustration, it's an overstatement. It's hyperbole. Otherwise, satisfaction would not even be possible. So you can look at these other texts at some other point. Where else can joy be found? It's found from the hand of God. 2.24 says this, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And I want to give you the flip side of this in another quote um, later on in the, near the beginning of chapter 6. Look at this, what this verse says. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, 
so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. I read an illustration that really helped me understand this in one of the commentators that I read. And he said, picture a can of peaches. You have a can of peaches, and you might possess that can of peaches. But if you don't have a can opener, you ain't going to be enjoying that can of peaches, even if you own it. right? You need the can of peaches and the can opener. And I would put to you here that the can opener is the gift of God. He might give someone a can of peaches, but not the can opener. You need both. And so uh, joy comes from the hand of God. It also comes through responsible human action. Joy is, is a gift from God for those who please God. Check out what 2.26 says. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. We're focused on that word joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And, you know, in the New Testament, we understand that the way that we please God is by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible, impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so we please God by putting our faith in his only son, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, and then living out our lives in that faith. That's how we, we seek to please God. We're not, we're not trying to earn his favor. It's by faith. So to review, where can joy be found? It can be found in your work and the, the simple pleasures of work and in food and drink. But that's only possible if you receive them as God's gift from God's hand and through responsible human action, this, this seeking to please God by faith. This next quote uh, on the next page, I think, summarizes uh, this, this concept very well. I'm just giving, I'll just read the whole quote. This is so beautiful. If we use God's gifts as mini-gods, we are like those who try to play soccer with a watermelon. The melon isn't designed to withstand our kicking and will crumble. But if we enjoy God's good gifts the way he intended, not as many gods, but as kindnesses, then we grow wise in locating the feisty joy that refuses to quit under the sun. The point here is this. We can only enjoy God's good gifts of food, drink, work, even companionship. We can only enjoy those things as we worship him, not those gifts in and of themselves. It means that we derive our greatest joy from the Lord himself, not from the, the lesser gifts that he gives. Okay, so we've looked at the first two themes, and now we will look at the last theme. What does it mean to fear God? Ecclesiastes presents God as the powerful creator and the sovereign Lord of the, of the whole universe, who will one day call everyone to account. And the, the book ends very clearly on this note about fearing God. 1213a says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God. It's the, it's, the, it's the conclusion of the whole book. I'm just going to reference what's here. You can look up these passages later. The point that I wanted to make with this slide is that the fear of God comes up throughout the book. And as part of why God has caused life to be confusing and frustrating, it's to get our attention and, and to help us to see we're not in control. He is. And we need to, we need to bow at his feet and recognize that we don't we don't call the shots, the Lord does. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 has, has the key. It says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. 
That word and, you can, you can equate that with th this phrase, that is. So you can, you can understand this, this sentence, fear God, that is, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so what we see here is that the core of fearing God is obeying his commands. I think it's interesting, when we look in the New Testament, Jesus says if we love him, we'll obey his commands. That's in John 14, 21. It's, it's related. So what does it mean to fear God? It means keeping his commands. And, and in Ecclesiastes, there are a number of commands that are given. I'll only give you two examples. 5, 1, and 2 says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So this, these would be commands related to how we worship God. Uh, here's another example of a command in Ecclesiastes. It says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the, hearts of in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And so there, I'm just giving you two samplings. There are actually more commands in Ecclesiastes. And then if you look back at all of the, all of the wisdom literature, there's even more. The, the key point here is that we show our fear of God when we obey his commands. Why should you fear God? Well, let me read that verse again. I'll give you another verse, verse 14, but let's read it again. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So he gives us two reasons. The first reason is the command applies to everyone. Did you notice that? At the end of the verse 13, it says it's the whole duty of man or all of mankind, every human being. It's, there's a universal application. No one's, no one's going to get out of this. So the command applies to everyone. That's one reason why we should fear God. There's a second reason, and it's in the second sentence. God will bring every deed to judgment. It doesn't say that he's going he's to judge some deeds, right? It says every deed, and it also says even the secret things, even the things that we think that nobody knows about. So here we see that Ecclesiastes is very clear that one day the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be rewarded. Uh, Ecclesiastes earlier in the book acknowledged that there are times when it looks like the wicked are getting away with it, like everything's going well for the wicked and the, and the righteous are, 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 are suffering. But here at the end, Ecclesiastes is very clear that in the end, God is actually going to, to punish the wicked and reward the righteous. So what effect should that have on us? Well, this, the prospect of these reasons and, and, and God's judgment, it keeps us from despair because we know in the end, God will bring about justice. Every injustice you hear about and every injustice that you see, God will make right. God will make right. And this prospect keeps you from sin. Ecclesiastes commends the enjoyment of life, but it also reminds us of judgment. And near the end of the book, it says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. What should I do as you, as you get to the end of, of these, uh, these three themes? I want to draw your attention to Ecclesiastes 12, 10, and 11, because I think here captures the author's aim for the book. Let me read it. For us, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. 
Do you know what a goad is? A goad is a sharp, pointy stick that a shepherd would use, and he would poke, or a shepherdess would poke the, the hind legs of like goats or sheep or cattle to get them moving in a certain direction. That's a goad. And so what the author is telling us, the words of the wise right there, that's, that includes all the, the words that were contained in the book of Ecclesiastes. What the author is trying to do is he's trying to provoke us into action. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the frustration, don't, aren't we tempted to just throw up our hands and give up? But the author is saying, don't do that. I want to get your attention. Yeah, life is frustrating. I'm trying to get your attention and, and point you in the right direction. He's trying to goad us somewhere. And then the second image that's used is like nails firmly fixed. That's a picture of an anchor. And here's the beauty. In a world of chaos and impermanence, in a world of frustration, we can anchor ourselves in unchanging truth that's revealed. Wow, we have a hope that the world doesn't have, that Jim Carrey, he, he wasn't referencing. So what do you do? We need to be goaded, and we need to be anchored by God's truth. So when you confront the frustrations of life, and if you have not experienced frustrations, oh, they're, they're going to come. I imagine that most of you have experienced frustrations. There are two things that we need to do with our frustrations. First, don't be surprised at them. This is the consequence of living under God's curse due to sin. And don't run away from God. Don't run away. We run away, I think, broadly in two ways. One way is we turn inward and we get really sullen and discouraged and despairing. Or we, we, we rebel and we shake our fist at God and I'm going to live life my own way. And what Ecclesiastes is teaching us is that we need to instead fear God and obey his commands, even in the midst of chaos. I'll tell you one way that that's getting worked out in my life right now. In my life right now, there is one relationship I have that is exceedingly difficult. And I've actually come to the conclusion, I'm 45, I've come to the conclusion that just about any point in my life, there's at least one difficult relationship. Maybe you guys can relate with me. But in this relationship that I have, it's, it's very painful. And I am tempted to just lash out. I am tempted to bitterness. I am tempted to just wanting to get away from the person. Uh, it's no one in this room, by the way. <laughs> um, I, I'm tempted to, to not speak the truth in love. I'm tempted to not persevere. Can you relate with me? Is there, have you experienced that in your life where there's one person that is just oh so difficult? And one of, I've, one, of the, one, of, one of the things that God has used in my life in terms of this book of Ecclesiastes is he's saying, Ben, will you fear me? Will you keep my commands? Will you keep on hoping? Will you keep on forgiving? Will you keep on speaking the truth in love? And it's an act of worship, honestly. It's, a, it's an act of faith. And I, I fail probably more, more than I succeed. But this is a way that Ecclesiastes has goaded me and anchored me. What about when you experience the blessings of life? Well, first, don't think you deserve them. What we all deserve is hell. And don't treat them as mini-gods, as, as the kind of thing that gives life meaning. You know, I told you earlier about that, that car that we had to get rid of after the repair. A few years ago, a friend just gave us a car out of the blue. I, I hadn't even, he, he didn't even know about our need, but he's just like, we'd like to give you a car. I'm like, really? 
And, and then uh, about a year and a half later, that car was rear-ended, and we had to total it. <laughs> and you know, that, that can be um, devastating if, if, if your heart is fixed on whatever good, you know, good gift that God has given you. But if God is the central sweetness of your life, it's okay if you get the, the little gifts, and it's okay if they're taken away. And so when we experience the blessings of life, what we need to do is we need to thankfully receive them as a gift from the giver of all good things, but not put our hope in them. Now, as we get to the end of this, this uh, seminar, I want to reflect on, do any of us actually consistently do this? If this is where we ended, that would be kind of a downer, right? Because if you're like me, I don't consistently do any of this. I fail every day. So where is our hope? And that is where we, we will end. Where is our hope? There is someone greater than Solomon who has spoken. Remember, Ecclesiastes was probably written by Solomon. Check out what Luke 11.31 says. This is the context as Jesus is speaking with people who didn't really believe him. And this is what Jesus said, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is greater than Solomon. And this is, this is a little different than what you have on your handouts, but just follow me. Jesus uh, lived the cursed. God, Jesus is God incarnate. He came to earth to do something about the mess we got ourselves into. He experienced the curse, right? He experienced hunger. He experienced pain. He experienced temptation. He experienced rejection. One author said this, everything Solomon pursued, Jesus was tempted by but resisted. So Jesus lived under the curse, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus became a curse, dying to save us. Check out what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus endured the, the grossest possible injustice. You want to talk about injustice? You, you can't get worse than what happened to Jesus. Here is the only truly righteous man who is treated worse than a, as the worst criminal. He also endured the greatest suffering. Not only was the, the crucifixion on the cross uh, very painful, but what was even greater suffering was he was cut off from the Father. He bore the Father's wrath for our sin, and he died. And he did that, as Galatians 3.13 says, why? To redeem us from the curse. So when we talk about, does Jesus know something about living under the curse? Does Jesus know something about living under, in, in this fallen world? He knows a lot. He knows more than we do. It doesn't stop there. Jesus overcame the curse by his resurrection. Jesus' rising from the dead is evidence of his authority over a broken creation. Not only did he overcome the curse, he is reversing the curse. This is Jesus' words to Martha right, at, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, Jesus' resurrection changes everything. It gives us hope. 
And when we're reflecting about someone greater than Solomon, we don't just have a greater teacher. We have a greater savior. We have a savior. And we'll end on this slide. Where is our hope? As we get to the end of, of this overview of Ecclesiastes, we see that we're seeing two perspectives. The first perspective that Ecclesiastes has given us is from the view of under the sun, it's all in vain. You know, apart from faith in God, apart from fearing him, that is the conclusion you should come to. All is in vain. Sometimes that's all we can see. We can't muster the faith to see beyond that. You know, the, the Apostle Paul agrees with the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes here. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul said, if no resurrection, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. This is what he said. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so if the resurrection didn't happen, um, our, our faith is futile. Everything's in vain. But there's the, the other perspective that we consider. From the, from the point of view of the resurrection, none of it is in vain. None of our lives are in vain. And let me give you two more quotes here. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 21, a little bit later in that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Read it sometime. Paul says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jesus' resurrection is fact. If you doubt that, or if you're not sure of it, just try to do some research and try to disprove Jesus' resurrection. Many people have become Christians by trying to disprove Jesus' resurrection. But if you're trying to knock out Christianity, that's the big pillar, the resurrection of Christ. It's fact. And what this passage is saying is that Jesus' resurrection, remember, the death is the, the ultimate curse. What about if someone comes back from the dead? That's what happened with Jesus. And his resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection of all who belong to him. That's what the verse is saying. Those who believe in him. So you and I, if, you're, if, you, if you've put your faith in Christ, we live with our, with our feet in two different ages. Uh, we live in this present evil age. That's sometimes what the scriptures talk about, this age that we're in. Ecclesiastes describes it. All is in vain. And we also live in the world to come where everything will be made right if you know Christ. And so, um, as we face frustration and confusion, the, the question here is, where is our hope? As you face frustration and confusion, you can't make sense of your life, our hope is in Jesus and his resurrection. As you face your own failing to fear God and obey his commands, because we all fail, we don't keep his commands as we ought. Where is our hope? Our hope is in Jesus and his resurrection. Finally, this is the last verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. It's the last verse in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Check out how it ends. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So whether your labor is you're faithfully doing your schoolwork for Jesus, whether your labor is you're taking some time to, to uh, invest in your relationship with your siblings, or you're talking to someone you've never met before, or you're, you're sharing Christ with someone, and may, even if they, if, if they walk away, maybe it's even just giving a glass of water to someone. 
What the scriptures are saying here is that because of Jesus' resurrection, it means this, none of our work in the Lord is in vain. No matter if no one recognizes it, no matter if you encounter roadblocks, none of it is in vain. Wow, that is so hopeful. Let me uh, go ahead and close this in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. Thankful that he died and became a curse. But not only that he became a curse and paid the debt of our sin, that he's overcome the curse and he's reversing it. Thank you that he is reigning now. And Lord, even though we still need to live in a, in a world that is under the curse, that we have the hope of the resurrection. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that you would help us to not lose hope. Help us to, to move forward in fearing you. Help us to, to cling to our hope in Jesus, knowing that our work is not in vain. And uh, Lord, would you send Jesus back soon? In Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple notes before you leave. At the end of your pack out, there are, packet, there are a few appendices that I included. One of them is a, a structural outline of Ecclesiastes, and two of them are slides that, that flesh out the fear of the Lord. The, the one that has a number of um, Old Testament passages is how to understand the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. And the last slide actually um, gave, uh, uh, captures an insight that I was helped by just a few years ago, and that is um, the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is roughly equivalent to faith in Christ in the New Testament. And so you can check that slide out. I also have one other handout. For those who really like to dive into the literary structure of a book, there's a more detailed literary structure. If you're interested in that, you can come up and grab one of these. Thank you for coming. You are dismissed. <laughs>